Hello. See, the cold uh, uh, a warm recording is better. A cold recording is cold opening. <sighs> you become what happens is that you become sort of self con- conscious. Conscience? Conscious? Conscious. It's aware. It's alive. Yes. This is gonna be it. This is our recording. And and what I'm gonna do is uh um cut it in some fashion. No, I won't. I think we'll probably just go live with this. It, it, it's it's better to come in. And and by the way, um, you know, if if, if you have... Well, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I, I'd like to restart. Can you at least say welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast or something so I actually know we're doing it? You just said it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Podcast number um, th- four. This is the fourth podcast. It's absurd. We are yes. down to... I saw your list of how many, how many listeners we have and we're now down. It goes down every time, so... Uh, that's a well, that's a good sign. This this time we're going to get it down to six. We're getting down to just the true fans yep. of Joel and myself, which is important because you know I want to have as many avenues as possible to feed my ego. So this is a new one, which is very exciting for me. Yeah. Uh, it, so let me let me start. Um, I have some stuff still left over from our first call. Um, okay. Questions that people had, and one yeah. of the questions that that people are asking quite a bit about um, Stack Overflow is. Well, why even bother? Like, what? What aren't there other sites that do this? Isn't this yet another way to reinvent the wheel in programming yeah. community? I mean, it's not like there's any shortage of places for programmers to go to, you know, ask questions and get get answers. And, and that's certainly a fair question. And I want to also open by saying that failure it's is a ridiculous not question. <laughs> well, this could totally. So what fail. is this communism? <laughs> well, I, I, is this I, like I, there's like one restaurant, one grocery store, one department store, well, one th- airline, one hotel? <laughs> well, I think there's sort of a winner takes all mentality that, that sets in after a while. It's like, would you really start a video sharing site in the face of of YouTube? And even actually, in, in that example, there actually are other video sharing sites that I'm starting to see become pretty big because mm-hmm. they are discriminating themselves from YouTube. Uh, one way they yeah. do this is by actually having high quality videos. One of the with problems boobs. With YouTube, with <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've seen like a Vidler and, and, and Vimeo, and a lot of people are, are starting to use those sites. So, you know, even in the face of like overwhelming dominance, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I think it makes sense to have different options. So, <clears throat> what are we going to actually bring to the table that makes us better? Or, or at least different than these existing programming communities. And I, I think one of the things we have going for us, uh, and it sounds kind of obvious, is, is one, we have l- pretty large audiences that we're going to say, hey, take a look at this thing we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. So, y- you know, it's kind of like when, when Nine Inch Nails did digital music distribution and when Radiohead did digital music distribution, all the commentators, when they talked about that, said, yeah, that's no problem. You can do exactly what they did if you have a band. Just one, be Radiohead, right? to put digital yeah. music online. So we've built up... Is that where Larry, Larry Wall's quote about Pearl comes from? No, Larry, I don't know that quote. Uh, he says about Pearl, if you don't like the way something works in Pearl, make a different language and then make it popular. Yes, yes. So we're, we're hoping that you know having large audiences that we're involving in this process um, through this podcast and through the blog and so forth is one of the reasons that it's going to be different. And then another reason... Also, we're going to have boobs... <laughs> yes, we're gonna have an attractive female host. <laughs> it's not going to be Joel, unfortunately. There, there's, we have no rules about frontal nudity, like like YouTube. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a possibility. Let uh, me play. Let me play a question here. I got a question here that somebody sure. uh, uh, somebody asked, which is sort of relevant. Hi, Jeff and Joel. 
My name is Kyle. I'm a graduate student at the University of Arkansas. First of all, I'd like to say that I really enjoy your podcast and look forward to seeing Stack Overflow come to fruition. Uh, but one question that keeps popping up in my mind, it isn't clear yet to me how you plan on cultivating enough users in order for the site to become a really useful tool. Maybe I'm <laughs> underestimating the size of your community on your blogs, but how are you going to provide enough content to reach a critical mass of activity that will convince developers that using the forums on Stack Overflow is worth their time? So that was the question, I guess, that everybody keeps asking. What's, what, what, why another one, and how are you going to hit this so-called critical mass? Right. Well, first, a bit of terminology. So it's not exactly a forum. I mean, when I thought about this, and Joel and I were initially talking about this, I, I framed my mind in a way that said, okay, this is a forum that we're building. But the more we looked at it, it's not really a forum. It's more focused than that. Because forums have a problem, and I've discussed this on previous podcasts, where you can talk about anything, right? And that ends up sort of you end up chasing your tail in some way. But when you can chase, when you can discuss anything, you end up discussing nothing. So mm-hmm. th- there's a very laser tight focus on on question answer uh, that I think sets us apart from forums right out of the gate. And then also, and I don't think I don't think we've actually discussed this publicly, but there's going to be a wiki like aspect to uh, the pages as well. So the questions won't hopefully won't go totally stale over time. Uh, because once you get enough trust in the system, you'll actually be able to update the questions, point people to different areas as questions get old, uh, and, and so on. So th- those are my first two observations out of the gate. What would you say, Joel? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm sort of wondering about this term critical mass. Uh, like, what is the critical mass here that, that we need to achieve? If we have one particular programming topic, uh, let's say, um, let's pick something good, Link 3.0. Is, do they have 3.0? How do they do the version numbering with Link? Link 1.0, C Sharp 3.0 for Microsoft Visual Studio 12, 11. Uh, so you've got this very, very narrow topic. And uh, one of the people participating uh, happens to have studied it um, and, and, and written a couple of programs using it. So he kind of knows the answers. And there's three or four people who just kind of need some pointers and they're asking questions about this very narrow topic. And lo and behold, because there are those three people asking questions and the one person giving answers, maybe for two weeks until they move on, then you have critical mass. And we've only answered one question. I mean, it's not Wikipedia. Um, but, but you know, assuming that the question is very specific and that the person got an answer to their question and that Google indexes us and that that answer doesn't appear anywhere else and that Google then points to us when somebody else asks that question to Google in the future – Right. Then that's all it really takes. I don't think there's a matter of suddenly like hitting uh, either uh, more people than any other site. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think you even have to hit very many people. You know, I have on my discussion group, I have this .NET forum, which is a very, very small .NET forum compared to all the other gigantic .NET fora that exist elsewhere in the world. And uh, it's called .NET Questions, and it gets you know a few posts a day, but it's really useful to the people who participate there, and those those. Those questions and answers do do get into Google, not on every topic. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any particular point at which it suddenly becomes viable, or that point is a lot smaller than you than than, than you think. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I've also seen a lot of times when I'm searching for information, I'll, I'll as I'm searching for it, I'll, I'll sort of realize that I could have actually written a better landing page than all almost everything that I found, mm-hmm. and. I wrote about Model View Controller uh, last night because we're actually using ASP.NET MVC, which is sort of a, a new lightweight MVC framework that 
Microsoft is going to officially bless at some point in release. And in the, in the process of researching that, I was like, okay, well, what, what does model view controller actually mean? I mean, like, what have people done with it? How, does, how do you define it? And I actually never found a single page that I actually liked that much. I mean, I, there were bits and pieces of information that, I, that sort of helped me on different pages. But I felt truly, after looking at all that information, I could have written a better article um, than anything I found on Google. Uh, and I think that same logic really applies. There's a lot of really, really smart programmers. And the amount of information, as you start drilling down into these topics, and you would think MVC is a pretty big topic. There would probably be like, okay, this is the best page ever on MVC. No one can possibly top this page. But I do not believe that page exists. And I think that's true of so many tiny little topics as you drill down. I mean, much de- much lower than the you know this huge concept of MVC. Um, I think a lot of talented programmers can, can actually... You know, it doesn't have to be one person. It could be six or seven people contributing to this question and answer thread. Would it end up building a page that's better than 90% of the information that's out yeah. there? What, what, um, I think that the small talk programmers that coined the term model view controller were a little bit muddled in their thinking. I don't think they, I don't think they really got it right. <laughs> well, it's confusing. I mean, that's one of the things I found is when I researched it, it really is confusing <laughs> because the terms are so generic, right? Like model, view. Con- I mean, these are generic, generic terms. They're also not so you- exactly – like what's the – the controller is the way in which you use the view to manipulate the model or is the controller some other thing? What, what's going on here? Well, there is controversy about the controller. Yeah. And um, shouldn't, shouldn't – what, what think- happens if the view cha- – if the, if the data of the model changes? Who tells the view to update itself? Is that also the controller's oh, right. job? So the controller is like a, a view model synchronizer, or is it, or is the user who's who's using the user interface is is he the controller? Well, I think it's one of those concepts where you get into it, what you you get out of it, what you put into it, and I think for me the best example of it actually sort of working was, you know, taking the web browser HTML and CSS, where the browser is the controller, CSS is the view. And HTML is is the model, e.g. the actual bedrock information that you're trying to transmit out into the yeah, world. Yeah, and that's what the Rails guys do is they're just like, well, these are subdirectories. We have the view is – but they call the view the HTML, and the model is the underlying data, and the controller is just the, the code. But but right, right. I, I don't know if that's really well, that's because- strictly what the object-oriented people – I don't think that's strictly the way they were thinking about it. Well, I, I think the value of it comes in the fact that you're actually thinking about your architecture, which is more than I think a lot of teams do. There, you're actually thinking, okay, how can we actually have some logical separation mm-hmm. of what we're doing in the application? More so than are we doing this exactly right? Um, and and the example I like to point to is is your app skinnable? Because actually, and the reason this originally came up is I was starting to edit some of the CSS for the Stack Overflow blog to put in our logo, mm-hmm. and I realized the easy way for me to put in the logo was to slap an image tag in there, right? right. A hard-coded image tag. But once I did that, my, my, our site was no longer skinnable because I have this image hard-coded in the HTML, right? It's linked to a specific image. And, I mean, you can't... It's difficult to change that through CSS. The way you're supposed to do it is have a div that you then use an image replacement technique on from the CSS. Mm-hmm. So even even in the very basic level arena of HTML and CSS, you have to sort of think about, okay, how can I achieve my goal um, and I think the best way to summarize that goal is, okay, how can this be skinnable? Like, I can truly have CSS. I could plug in a totally different look for the site uh, without modifying my HTML. Does that, um, I think that's a valuable concept. Does anybody ever really quite achieve that with just CSS? I mean, I think Well, that, sure. Look at I, 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 CSS. It depends what you mean by – wait, don't tell me about Zen Garden because that's uh, – <laughs> 
Why, why do you hate Zen Garden? I think Zen Garden is great. I love. Okay, Zen tell Garden. me one example other than Zen Garden where somebody actually has a site where just changing the CSS really and 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 does, what what is skinnable really? It's like t- changing the look, but it doesn't really let you change the feel in certain rather crucial ways that you may want. Well, my, my point is that, and I think what you were getting at is this is difficult, right? You have to actually work at this to, to actually have something be truly skinnable. And then that's what you're saying, and I totally agree. I'm basically saying I mean, anything you want to allow people to customize, you're going to have to do something to let them customize it. And if the well, only sure. thing you let them customize is fonts and colors, you know, by giving them CSS where they can change fonts and colors and maybe put a couple of background images on on if you were smart enough to remember to give them an ID or or uh, some kind of a tag that they can hang their things off of in the CSS, then, uh, you know, uh, good for you. But but you do have to sort of think about those things. And if they want to hang a tag off of some thing that you haven't actually created an ID or a name for or doesn't use a specific class in your HTML file, uh, it may be impossible. Well, totally. And I think that's why it's important to... to sort of look at NBC and say, okay, let's think about this, right? Like, how can we actually achieve this without just, you know, rolling along yeah. uh, and not, not thinking about it? And then all of a sudden ending up with an app that's, you know, it's so enmeshed in its its layout that you really can't skin it in any way because it's not that you want to actually go in and say, you know, here there's 50 different ways you can skin this app, but that it, it gives you a cleaner separation of, you know, the model and the view, right? And the controller is you put the controller in there and, and the controller's response. So let me just play the devil's advocate for a moment. When you say it's cleaner, uh, you know, let's say that you have some text here and some text there, and this text uh, uh, needs to be positioned to the left of that other text because that's just what it means. You know, it's just logically oriented that way. It, it just makes sense for it always to be on the left of that one thing. So now the the, the CSS uh, fascists, or should I say the CSS extremists, would say, all right, that's got to go in your CSS file. So now there's this code in the CSS file that's relating to a particular ID in a particular HTML page and saying this ID goes to the left of that ID. You know, maybe it's floated or something like that. And now all you've done is you've separated uh, – you, you, you've made people have to look in two places. And every time they look in either of those places, you know, in one of those places, they don't understand why the text is winding up on the left unless they run a debugger like Firebug or something like that. And uh, in the other case – uh, they don't know why, uh, you know, they're looking at the CSS file and they're like, hmm, I wonder if anybody's even using this particular rule that I have in here. And you have no canonical way of finding out where in the source code that particular thing may be applied. And all you've done is you've basically separated two things, you know, you've separated two things in space that are directly related to one another. Well, sure. I mean, Okay, so there's really two classes of things we're talking about here. One is redefining the behavior of, of default built-in tags in HTML, right? Those are generic and universal. So if you wrote an HTML file, and I have CSS that's only talking about the built-in HTML elements, it's going to work. It's going to format, you know, here's your block quote, here's your list item, yeah. um, here's your paragraph, here's your H1, H2, all that stuff. But you're right, that when you start digging, it's okay, this is the... You know, this is actually a, a sort of abusive a, of CSS is to call it like the header div. <laughs> You're not supposed to mix up semantic meaning like that. Because right. um, I might decide, hey, your header, I'm going to put that at the, the bottom. So the header, the thing that's called header is now a footer. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's where it gets weird when you start naming stuff. But you're right. I mean, to some extent, the view um, needs to understand the model. I've, you know, right? I've, the so, thing is, I, like, I've worked on a lot of projects where the CSS file only gets larger, and that is because there are things that have been added to the CSS file that manipulate some page somewhere to make it look right because of this belief that things have to go in the CSS file that have to do with style. 
which is not completely incorrect, the end result is that you wind up with a CSS file that just goes on and on, and it's almost impossible to parse, impossible to figure out. And you believe that you can skin your site just by giving a CSS file to a smart web designer. And if you ever tried doing that, the web designer would come back and say, I just don't know what any of these things are. And you'd have to point out, oh, this is the display that appears if you get that particular error message. So here's how you generate that error message, and you can go see it. And without that, they don't have any real ability to change the CSS without at least being able to test it or produce all of those particular bits of model in that particular view. Sure, sure. And I think you got to view it as like, you know, a long-term goal that you move towards. I mean, this stuff is difficult, right? There's the easy way, which is just to muddle everything together, <laughs> like the spaghetti code. Remember classic, well, <laughs> classic ASP. Not spaghetti, like it's neat. Month. You put the things together that belong together. <laughs> well, they can belong together, yeah. but... Uh, in the ASP.NET MVC, so we've been talking about HTML and CSS, but this also works at the code level. Yeah. Um, in, in my blog entry, I posted a screenshot of the project layout, and it actually is very clean because you have uh, just web pages with essentially mail merge type formatting, right? Where you, you poke stuff through the holes in the template. There's almost there's literally no code there. I just, um, it's a very static template. Yeah, that's what we call. And you plug mm-hmm. the stuff, and you plug the stuff into it. Um, so I think it works at the code level. And so, but just say calling the separation clean, good lord, isn't this the opposite of object-oriented programming? Like, didn't we a long time ago decide that we want to put the data and the data that and the op, and the methods that operate on that data together in the same place because they're related somehow and they should, you know, that they, they can provide some kind of encapsulation by putting them together? Surely, separating out things because this one happens to be view and that one happens to be model is uh, a step backwards. I mean, why, why is that cleaner? It just seems to me like it's just a kind of a random artificial distinction. Let's put all the well, lowercase identifiers well, in this file and all the uppercase identifiers in that file. Well, well let's, let's think of a concrete example. So in ASP.NET, mm-hmm. you know, the traditional web form model, when you, when you have a button on a web page and you click on yeah. it, um, it would redirect – well, it wouldn't even redirect. It's a, it's a post back to the very same page. Right. So the code that handles that button click is there – with the page. So already you have, you know, you're conflating, you know, the layout, which is how the button will look and, and, you know, the visual style of the button, which is the, the web form and the code is, they're sort of right next to each other. They're, they're sort of the same thing. And, and if you're using, if you're not using code behind, they're literally in the same file, right? You'd have HTML sitting next to, okay, when this button is clicked, do this. Okay. That's pretty so, rare, but yeah, but yeah. And, and, and you want that. Why would that be rare? That's, that's not, no, rare no, it's pretty that's, rare not to use code behind. Well, yeah, I think, I think sure, most people would but, probably keep this. They would try to keep their C sharp or their VB in a different file than their uh, HTML. But but okay, so 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 the question is, where do they? Uh, but if you look at PHP and if you look at a lot of the really really popular web programming you know languages, yeah. um, that's still how it's done. I mean, it's very much done that way. That's the default, and people have to unlearn that to learn. Okay, my code should go in a different place. And I think this is a question of okay. I understand. I understand that that's what we keep telling them to do. But I'm I'm just wondering why why are we telling them that this separation is a good thing when we just spent three generations of programmers putting the data and the methods that operate on that data together in the same classes. Well, I think that still exists. I mean, that would be the uh, the model, right? And and the controller could could manipulate. It's a question of like, what do you put in the model and what do you put in the controller, right? I mean, at some point you're going to have a data access layer there, mm-hmm. right? I'm unclear whether that would go 
you know, with the model itself or be considered part of the controller. I think it would be part of the model, personally. So I think what you're describing uh, wouldn't actually be a problem. I think you'd actually have, you know, classes that represent the database that actually let you operate on the database, like customer.add and things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think the controller would be doing that. I think the model would take that on. So I think what you're describing is, is yeah. in fact, true. Weird. I mean, it winds up in three different places, and now I'm even less happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't want to belabor it, but let me bring it back home. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. Listen, I'm all for it, okay? It's model view controller. That's great. I'm just kind of wondering. It's just, it sort of sounds to me like you're trying to split up things just because of a certain type of anal retentiveness that programmers like to get themselves into, where they're like, God, it's cleaner if you separate something. And they just love to have these little separations that make that they have to spend a lot of effort maintaining and it makes them feel good in some way and it's all for some hypothetical goal of being able to skin an app when the number of skinnable apps in the world is minuscule it's you know less than one hundredth of one percent of all apps that are out there can be skinned or need to be skinned or would benefit from being skinned and in the meantime you're telling yourself well this will be great because i can just throw this thing off to a designer and no you can't if you've ever tried to throw a css file to a designer uh, after having built the application, no matter how careful you were, you'll discover that the designer is going to come back to you and ask for 37 changes in the order in which the elements appear in your HTML page, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so it, it's kind of weird. I mean, it seems to me like it's just one more thing where programmers are looking for ways to make their life difficult. Now I'm going to get some hate mail for that one. Anyway. Well, <laughs> let me give you an example of where I think this would be useful. And we've been using fog bugs, and I think we have to be a little careful because there's been significant amount of criticism around whether this podcast is self-promotional for, you know, Fog Creek, basically. So I want to be a little careful, but maybe yes. I can balance that out by being by being critical. Fog bugs. Fog wait, bugs. just a minute. You can buy Fog bugs for only one hundred ninety nine dollars <laughs> per user, and it's free for up to two users. Student and startup edition. This yes. podcast is so, brought to you by StackOverflow.com, a commercial enterprise of Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood. Yes, Where you work. and that's true. This, let's be clear. This is absolutely a commercial enterprise at some level. Yeah. So I want to be completely open about that, but I don't want to be, you know, uh, you know, like a late night television commercial either. Yeah, that's true. Um, so fog bugs. Uh, although I do actually do like fog bugs, and it's very cool. This is the first bug tracking system I've used where it, it hooks into email automatically, mm -hmm. because Team System, which is what I sort of know in my previous life, um, definitely didn't do that. And it, it is very cool when somebody emails you that it automatically goes in as a you know a ticket, and I can reply to it there, and it maintains the history. So that's very very cool. I don't really enjoy the spam training aspect of it. Oh. well, it's our, I mean I, our database is already trained. It's already doing a hundred percent accurate job, and that's on about a hundred email messages. I'm sorry, wait. Well, sure, sure. Not advertising. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> but I didn't enjoy the training period. Let me just put it that way. And one thing I don't like is I, I think the, the visual layout is, leaves a lot to be desired of fog bugs. Right. Uh, and I think that if, I, if you could skin it, I, I think, first of all, I think it's realistic to say for a web app, you should be able to skin this in some meaningful okay, way. Okay, okay, okay. But if you want to skin it, the, cool. the visual layout is things like, okay, there's this drop-down menu that appears here. And you decide, hey, you know, I don't want that to be a drop-down menu. I want that to be over here, and I just want it to be a list of things. But the, yeah. over here, that's in the HTML file because there's an order to, the, to those elements, and it has, you have to change the order of those elements. You can't just change the CSS and say this thing goes after that thing. Well, I, okay. I, I'm not saying it's effortless, right? I mean, like everything else in programming, this takes actual effort, right? But the the benefit to me as a customer is I could replace what I consider to be sort of a marginal, you know, look of layout with something a lot cleaner and a lot, 
you know, nicer looking. Or maybe I could just make it look totally stupid like iGoogle, right? Where you have these these layouts that are just ridiculous, but people love them, right? Because they can customize it and make it their own. I think for a web app, it's very, very realistic. I, I agree that for a desktop app, the concept of skinning is kind of, kind of like hard, <laughs> Uh, unless you're doing a Windows presentation, are you? Foundation. Wait, you're a, you're kind of a you're an expert user. Are you really going to go in and skin Gmail or, you know? Well, I, it's not kind of tedious. Who cares? I guess it looks like. But looks- I feel like well, Fogbugs doesn't even use my whole screen. Like it's only using like the the, the the left quarter of my screen. It's just it's it's it needs some work layout wise. So. I feel like this is an area where you know your product in particular yeah. should benefit from something like this. Okay. So I, I think there are real benefits at the end of this. It isn't just you know architecture astronaut stuff. It's it results in I think real flexibility that matters to the end user and, and certainly to the development team. Right. My I mean, my, get, my philosophy is that it matters to them not in the actual Chrome, i.e. the UI of the application. They don't they don't really care about what they care about is what their documents look like and what their stuff looks like, and that may mean things like discussion groups and wiki pages, which they show to the world, um, but uh, you know, it may mean the logos and stuff like that, but it doesn't really mean being able to change our user interface in any kind of arbitrary CSS way. I think that a user would have to be extremely, um, well, I, I mean, what, 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 how, could, how could anybody possibly have time to decide that they want to change, um, you know, major aspects of the layout of Fogbucks? You know, minor things that they want to change. That's okay. They're welcome to try to make the page wider and they'll discover that it's hard to read, which is why we made it narrower in the first place. Um, okay, let's. Uh, that's enough about model view controller. What's next? On no, it's the an important. It's, it's an important topic because yeah. that actually is the architecture we're going to use for Stack Overflow. Oh, good. Okay, I didn't realize we were getting somewhere. You're using the new ASP.NET model view controller yeah. pack that that's they released. Right. Yeah, uh, no, no. We totally have code. We have error handling. We have oop. a data schema, all that good stuff. Really? So we definitely have progress. What is it do? Um, <laughs> well, it's a question and answer site. You see. Uh, can I, I put in I a question? To, can I enter a question? Can sure. I go into Stack Absolutely. Overflow and type a question? Uh, okay. Not yet, no. Okay. Well, at a very primitive level, it does, but it's not really worth showing at this point. All right. Um, I, I, I actually went to the Maker Fair this weekend, which is a Bay Area event. It's uh, sponsored by Make and Craft magazines, mm-hmm. uh, and it's sort of a cool event where just a bunch of people come and show off sort of the things they're doing and companies come. And I got to meet somebody from the Wikimedia Foundation. I didn't realize, but the Wikimedia Foundation has moved to San Francisco. They used to be in some crazy place in Florida. Um, and their servers are still there. Their main Wikipedia server farm Wait, is still in Florida. Wait, did you say Wikimedia? Yeah. Wikimedia is the name of the foundation, and then Wikipedia is the thing that one of the things that they do, right? Oh, I see. And that, what they're known for. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I found out that their entire Wikipedia database is 10 gigabytes, which surprised me. Um, Not very much. Because, uh, yeah, I was asking them about their server farm and how they back it up and stuff like that. But I was talking to Jay Walsh, who's their head of communications, a very, very nice guy. And it was just exciting for me to talk about Wikipedia because we've looked when – we, when we started Stack Overflow, you and I were both sort of big fans of Wik- what Wikipedia has done and view it as sort of a role model uh, in the sense of creating – evolving live pages that I can link to today, mm-hmm. and three years from now, I know those pages will be as relevant as they were three years ago. And this is something that blogs do very, very poorly. Blogs is another sort of uh, model we looked at for uh, Stack Overflow. So it's sort of the hybrid of these two, I think, that makes it really, really compelling. There's there's a blog aspect to it, you know, question, answer, like post, comment, right, which is very simple. People understand that. But on top of that, there's this really nice editing layer that goes on top of it. And I was talking to Jay and just trying to think through the reasons why I, I, I can't stop linking to Wikipedia, which has some scary implications because 
Wikipedia is eventually going to own every keyword. I mean, it's already happening. <laughs> and even in like 2006, I was like, "There's, no, I can't see a world where Wikipedia doesn't own every single search term." Yeah. Uh, because the results are so good. And the thing that makes it okay for me is that Wikipedia uh, and Wikimedia Foundation is a nonprofit. That's well, a big so they're deal. never going to own any commercial keywords. In particular, you think? Yeah, I don't think I don't think so. I mean, what if if you're by by which I mean if you're interested in getting a Jeep and you want to know about that? Well, actually, that's in there. If you're trying to find a local Jeep dealer well, and let's see what their prices are, I don't think you would go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia is the third entry for Jeep, and again, I, I see them just so that's like a I list of what the different vehicles are, and yeah, but still they're number three for Jeep. So uh, yeah. yeah, I it's a little scary. Uh, so I think there's aspects of Wikipedia that scare me a little. Yeah, but on the whole, I think it's a very useful resource. Yeah, <laughs> and I want. And Stack Overflow is going to have some of the same aspects. As you get trust in the system, yeah. everything, literally everything will be editable with, with, with an undue revision history. There, um, um, and that's a, a key part of our strategy. Let me play a question here because that's sort of... Uh, sure. uh, it's- hey, guys. This is Andrew Morrow from Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, I just had a question. I understand that you guys are using a dig-style system or another-style ranking system that will help push useful comments to the top. Uh, of a thread, uh, you know, if we have questions and, you know, the, the, the obvious junk is going to get pushed to the bottom. I've heard that in the first couple podcasts. Um, one thing that I've seen, though, that is kind of a dynamic with uh, programming sites is that uh, answers uh, will be posted across several posts going down, and, and you have to have read the previous post to really understand what these replies mean. And I'm worried that things are going to kind of go asynchronous as they get pumped up to the top, and it won't be as easy to follow the thread. And will there be a way to uh, view things in context a little bit better, or how are you guys planning on handling that? Thanks. So there's going to be two main sort orders for the questions and answers. One is... Uh, rank based on voting, and the second is simple chronological order. Um, The other thing that will happen, and this is something we talked about earlier, um, the person who creates the Mm -hmm. question has one special privilege. I assume, I guess system administrators will have it as well, but they're able to bless a certain response as, oh, thank you, this is an answer that really helps me. And that may also... Sprinkle it with a special water. Yes, it's like a it's like a blue ribbon mm-hmm. of some kind. Um, but as the person who created the question, you do have a little bit of special privilege in the thread. Um, your responses will be highlighted. You can also grant uh, basically a boost to an answer and say this this was a really good answer. This is my personal this is favorite the one that answer. My problem it may not be the yeah it may not be the best one by voting, but it's the one that the, the original person who asked liked the most. So you close that social loop of if I go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm trying to do this, can you please help me? And they, they help me, then I say, oh, thank you very much for helping me. So you can close that social loop, and we felt that was kind of important, more important than the voting even, to some degree. Um, but we hope that the two sword orders um, will address that concern, where you can view it chronologically so it doesn't get out of order, and you can also view it uh, based on what do you What, what do you do if you're reading, you're reading some answers, and the best answer is there, and somewhere else there's another answer that's also kind of good, and the combination of them would be great, and you want to somehow combine these answers in a better answer. In other words, you just want to be an editor. Like you're, 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 a lot of the people. If you look at the people that have contributed to our transcript uh, uh, pages for the for this podcast, and, and thank you all. Um, the, a lot of them just went in and made a little correction. They just saw something that was obviously a typo, or um, some case where some previous person who had been writing the transcript maybe didn't know how to spell someone's name, so they went in and they corrected. How do you how do you do that when you're reading answers on on Stack Overflow? If you just want to make that little edit to make that question better. 
So that's it, it'll be very much like Wikipedia in that there'll be once you have enough trust in the system, this is not something we're going to grant blindly. So you'll have to not only have an account but also have a reputation, mm-hmm. which is what we're calling it—a little bit of reputation. You can actually unlock and click edit and literally go through and edit anything in the system, really, except for probably other people's profiles. So if you wanted to combine a question with another question, um, the first thing I would do is, you know, consolidate the information across the question, post a link to the other questions, like, okay, this was also asked here, 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 and here, and then basically cross-reference them. Uh, I don't know if there'll be a way to close a question entirely. I assume that that's something we'll have to think so about. So I could I could around. theoretically if I saw somebody if I had lots of lots of um, karma or mana or whatever we're going to call it and I, somebody else had an answer that was uh, slightly wrong. I don't know, they left off a semicolon. Could I hit edit add the semicolon and save it? Oh sure, and absolutely. Do I get some some absolutely. credit? Do I get some points for that or do they get all the points for making their question better? You will. Nope, you will. You'll get um points and this is and the, the way to think of reputation in our system is I'm trying to do it very google like in that you can't give yourself reputation so you can't <laughs> there might be one or two things you can do that just result in immediate increase in your reputation but your reputation comes from other people voting for you so once I'm trying to think exactly how we're going to do this but perhaps once an edit goes in you get a partial credit for any up mods on that particular thing that you're going to have to do something about like um, circular so you, link farms of people voting each other up and so forth Oh, I'm sure there's all kinds of evil user pathologies we're going to have to deal with. We have thought about that a little bit. One thing we're going to do is very much like Wikipedia again, is if a question becomes very controversial, we can lock it down so that only people with reputation can do really anything with it. Because um, as it stands now, we were, we were hoping that guests could come in and add answers, add questions all they want without creating an account. This is another way we're different than some of the other sites where they really force you to create a login like almost immediately. Right. We are not going right. to do that. Uh, I believe very strongly in that. Um, but if a question becomes controversial, we can block that and say, okay, look, only people with reputation or people with logged in accounts, depending on the degree of how controversial it is, can do that. So we, we've given some thought to you know evil users, but I'm sure... You know, people are very uh, wily, and I'm sure they'll come up with new evil things. Um, well, to do. I don't think there's going to be that Hopefully much controversy not. in these realms. I don't think there were really. Well, anytime you have a a, a score in a system, there's going to be people that want to game. Uh, that's system. true, and that's true, and that's a little different than controversy. And there's going to be a lot of people uh, going through making, uh, and this happens on Wikipedia too. A lot of people going through making technically correct but almost meaningless improvements to grammar and spelling and punctuation right as long as it doesn't hurt the system um i'm i'm fine with it and and since your reputation largely comes from other people not you know you can't vote for yourself essentially that's that's pretty much the golden rule of google and with a lot of these systems work um so it'll really have to come from other people acknowledging what you've done so even if you go through and edit thousands Mm -hmm. of articles you're not gonna have thousands of points of reputation um only in the sense that other people saw your edits and ultimately upmodded it Mm -hmm. later um so we will be tracking that so you can upmod an edit, or you upmod the article after it's been edited, or yeah, I think we'll have to give partial credits based fractional. I mean, technically, it's possible you like, go look at the history of the article and find the diff and upmod the diff. I don't know if nobody's well, going to do that. Uh, hmm. Yeah, these are. I think fractional <laughs> fractional credits is the way to go. I mean, because think about it: if you go in and completely rewrite the original yeah. question, I mean, there might be some way of us, you know, doing a line count, saying, okay, how many lines did right. I edit? This guy or gal, I don't want to be sexist, um, and say, okay, you edited 50% of this. Now you get 50% of the credit for these upmods. 
Um, of course, that could also lead to pathologies where somebody would go in and just make trivial edits to everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, there's always new ways to game the system. So, yeah, I, this is going to be a very much an evolving thing as we do it. But the, the, the guiding principle is, you know, basically the page rank model where other people have to vote for what you've done to make it worthwhile. And, you know, Google spends God knows how many, how many resources on ungaming their system. So no matter how good it is, right, it's, it's just a, it's an ongoing battle that you yeah. fight. So we'll see how far. And they, uh, well, I wonder if there's some way to use their uh, page rank. I mean, one thing you could do is use, is sort of leverage off of Google's opinions about these articles. I assume we'll use them as a search oh, engine. Yeah, so. no, that's, that's, that's built in because uh, we'll have page views, right? Um, but we could also look up eventually page rank. Although page rank is kind of a weird metric, like it fluctuates a lot and it can be kind of strange. But certainly page views is is a metric that we use, and you will get rewarded for that if you create a question that you know gets a hundred thousand oh, page yeah. views. You'll get a special you'll get a special award. Probably, so if Google right, likes you, then you have a lot of page views, and if you have a lot of page views, you get some karma. So we are sort of yeah. getting some of the benefit of their algorithms. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and. Coming back to another topic that that came up, since we're going to have wiki-like aspects, I, I, I set up a Creative Commons license for our podcasts, and I actually didn't check with you. I just assumed this would be okay, but um, I set up a Creative Commons podcast What's that, some license. other kind of communism? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yes, that's absolutely okay. That's a good idea. <laughs> uh, so Creative Commons is neat in that everything – and here's the key point that people – I think don't understand, and I don't think I even understood this for a long, long time, is when you create something, it is copyrighted by right. default. Okay, so the default mode of creation, if you create something, if it's just like, like a little drawing on a piece of paper, it's copyrighted by know, you it's, forever. It's ridiculous. Right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird system. So when you say, I want to use Creative Commons, what you're saying is, I want to give up some of my inherent copyright so that other people can you know, remix, reuse, benefit from what I've created mm-hmm. in some way. And you can control that and put rules around it, and it's actually very, very cool. Um, they actually have a wiki, like a pre-formulated wiki Creative Commons license that I think we're going to use because Stack Overflow is going to be very wiki-like uh, on a basic right. level. So I think that's probably the way to go is just go with the default you know, Creative Commons wiki yeah. license um, and let people go from there. Because I know people have asked about licensing, and, and certainly – Part of what makes the site great, a big part of it, is going to be you know the the listeners, the people using the system. So I want to do the right thing in terms of um, licensing their content, so we're not. I know, think what we thought is that we wanted to abusing the. We don't want to license their profiles because that's their personal information, so we don't really have any right to do that. But but the but the information they put out should be redistributable and so forth. So if somebody puts in information. Yeah, yeah. This is meant to go stuff that's meant to go out into the world and be shared right. and reused. Um, so, so I think we will adopt the CC Wiki license um, for this okay. content. Do we have any other questions? Uh, right, we do. Um, but while we're on the sort of the legal subject, I guess I should mention that um, where um, I, I promised to get a lawyer in California because the idea of using my lawyer to represent both me and the company was apparently a legal mistake because that person would have a conflict of interest. Um, so, um, so I'm working on that. So then I have a friend who's looking for a lawyer out there, and. Um, I guess apparently the first our first attempt was this idea that it would be an LLC and you and I would own some shares and the investor there's an there's an investor the investor would have a smaller number of shares that he would buy but there's sort of the risk that if we're given a part of an LLC for free and he has to pay for that part of the LLC that that's a taxable event for us and we then have a bunch of income if you do it right. the wrong way 
Yes, and and just to the listeners, so I'm really relying on. I've never run a business before. I mean, I think it's one of those things that it's exciting to be able to do it at some point in your career. But since Joel has obviously has a business, he has Fog Creek. Um, I'm really relying on Joel to sort of guide me through this yeah. about what I should and shouldn't. Well, um, and you shouldn't be because <laughs> Fog Creek, for example, is a C corporation. And a C corporation, I was just thinking earlier today, the difference between a C corporation and an LLC is sort of like the difference between, um, shall we say, Microsoft and uh, and open source. And that the C corporation, everybody knows how it works. There are shares. You can make it do whatever you want. Ultimately, you have the unlimited flexibility, uh, but it's not a very good way to do things in certain circumstances. It doesn't give you tax pass-through choices. And an LLC is this mysterious form that is extremely sloppy. There's no assumptions. Uh, everything is kind of loose and just whatever you define. It's really kind of like Unix software. So, uh, so in an LLC, for example, there's no assumption that one share equals one vote. There's not even an assumption that you have shares. You can make shares if you want, but that's the first thing you have to do. Uh, you know, there are membership interests, and you can define anything you want. You can say, you know, I get 100% of the votes, and you get 0% of the votes, even if you put in all the money, and I put in none of the money, and none of that. You can do whatever you want with an LLC, whatever you write down. It's just sort of this flexible thing, but of course, you run the risk of the IRS then disallowing it. Um, so uh, it's kind of, it's it's kind of weird. I think if I were if I had to figure this out myself, I would have made it a C corp, and that would have been wrong. But we'll see what the lawyer says. Just like uh, when I have to figure out code I, I, myself, I just sit down and I write it using Microsoft tools, and it's non-ideal, but it's something that I already know, and I know how to make it work, and I know what all the problems are. I'm going to be suffering because of it. I did that. Right. No, and although I, I trust Joel, obviously, and Joel trusts me. We've only met one time in, in real life. Um, we kind of we yeah we met at your uh, the world tour. Uh, right? It's uh, all a blur. Me, part of I do is, remember that, yes. <laughs> part of this is just based on implicit trust relationship, but I think we have to, in, in terms of money and all that stuff, we have to have it written down and it has to be approved by lawyers. And I told Joel, at some level, this seems like a scam to, huh? to create business for lawyers because Joel has to have his lawyer. Yeah, we have, have to have, have four lawyers. Lawyer. The corporation... The corporation has to have another yeah. lawyer, and then there's another person that has to have another lawyer. So it's like a lawyer yeah. party, um, where of course everybody's getting these insane billable rates. So, uh, but it's a necessary evil because you know I hope this is hugely successful. But as I mentioned earlier, you know failure failure is totally an option. I mean, you might at some point decide totally disown me, and you know things might go south. And that's I think where the the contracts protect you. I, I, I don't even think respect. the contracts protect you. If things go if things go south, then they go south. The the, the contracts protect you for those cases where you suddenly hit something where you just you didn't really talk about what you were going to do if this happens. And even if you're both completely reasonable, you look at the situation and you say, hmm, we didn't really decide what would happen in this case. And uh, and then you look at your contract and you say, oops, it doesn't say anything. And now you have a potential conflict, and, and there may not be a, what a reasonable person would do. There may not be such an answer. Uh, and so – if you've done it well, then you look at your then then your lawyer has given you a contract that you look at and it's got 26 points and you'll find this point in there and you say aha look it says that you can't do that or that if this happens that that extra thing goes to me or that extra thing goes to you. Uh, if you ever sit down and try to think of like even the simplest possible relationship that you can have with somebody other than buying something from them, any kind of joint venture or anything like that, uh, and you just try to spend a few minutes thinking about all the different permutations and scenarios, uh, you get to about 20 clauses in your contract pretty quickly. And you don't really need a lawyer to write the contract uh, as long as you've thought about all those things. But a lawyer does help in that they, they come up with some of the what-if scenarios that it wouldn't have been polite for you to come up with. 
I know when not. So the lawyers, yeah. the lawyers have been through these battles. They've seen the problems theoretically, yeah. right? If you get a good lawyer, they'll say, "Okay, here's the or, problem." Or they'll even just imagine them. them, and then when they bring them up, there's nothing insulting about that. So, for example, when we negotiate, when we go to negotiate a lease for for real estate, which has happened a couple of times now at Fog Creek, the 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 landlord will always put in there that if we don't pay our rent, you know, within one minute of the time that it's due, then we are immediately evicted. We must vacate the space and instantly pay, we we instantly owe all rent from now until the end of the century, which becomes due in thirty seconds later, and uh, and various other onerous clauses, and they get our children and our houses and our homes and our. And uh, and then our lawyer says, "What are you talking?" And if we were to say this is this is unfair, then that's sort of putting us in the position of acting like we don't plan to pay our rent on time. Whereas if our lawyer says this is unfair, then it's just lawyers talking amongst themselves, and that's what they do. So it's right. up to so your lawyer can negotiate in those situations without it seeming like a lack of good faith. And a lot of times they will really put in lots and lots of clauses. Uh, you know, just to take a simple example. Um, uh, another simple example is this conference that, that we're doing, the Business and Software Conference, which I'm doing with Neil Davidson from Redgate Software. And, uh, you know, partially, um, you know, I'm providing some editorial conference material to the conference in the sense that I'm helping uh, recruit some speakers and I'm speaking and, you know, giving them brand name and that kind of stuff, calling it a Joel and Software Conference. But, like the list of details that we had to come up with about under what circumstances, who gets how much of the revenue, and what happens if there's somebody who gets a discounted fee, and who gets how much of the revenue if we have a student that's not paying, and so on and so forth. And you come up, you very quickly come up with about tw- 20 kind of interesting circumstances that are not obvious from from what what you would get from a from a handshake kind of agreement. Right. No, I, I've, I've begrudgingly come around to so, the necessary evil. Yeah, and you don't. And the truth is, you're never. You're not after this. You're not going to see a lawyer for for four or five years. Which is, I think, good. I think that's the way um, it should be. So, yeah. real, quickly, I I do want to mention um, our logo design contest now over. We did pick yeah. a logo. Uh, Joel and I both sort of kind of signed off on it. And I apologize. There were some really great entries. Um, and I think the winner. Uh, let me. I do want to actually say his name. Is Peter Borlace? Borlace? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but he's, he's out of the UK. Uh, I really liked his entry. Uh, there were three others that were really strong contenders, and we actually did hook those guys up with Time Snapper licenses from Leon Bambrick. Because I know, and the more I thought about this, because one of the observations you had about the contest was it's kind of unfortunate that it's winner take all. It would almost be better if it was okay, first person gets this much, first place gets this much, second place gets this much, third place gets this much. So it's not quite as winner yeah. take all. So I'm glad we were able to do that, um, and I went I went ahead and put the, lo- the logo together and uh, yeah, it's up on the site. It's set up it's on great. the website. Yeah, yeah. and uh, one thing I want to ask you is uh, one reason I came up with the 99 Designs contest is because I I mentioned on Twitter that I was struggling trying to figure out what to do about the logo, and that's how I got hooked up uh, with the guys at 99 yeah. Designs. And I was kind of curious, have you? I, I'm a huge Twitter. Oh uh, no, do we have to talk I, about Twitter? I, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to talk about it a little bit because I was wondering if you wanted because I it's very useful it right is. like I got this 99 designs hookup through it right I mean that's useful um, and I get really great feedback like I'll right. post something and I'll get all these really great responses of have you tried this have you tried this it's basically public instant messaging yeah. it's kind of like IRC but through the web right so it's it's kind of weird I mean it sounds like so Twitter curious. is something for these web celebrities like you. 
<laughs> well, I find it very useful. I, I, I but if you weren't a web celebrity, it wouldn't be that useful. Well, have you, a th- how many people do you have following you? Uh, like 2,800 people following you. <laughs> you have to admit that that's a sort of unusual number of, of followers. It's relatively high, but I'm not in the top 100. There's certainly way more famous people than me. Paris Hilton? <laughs> Does she yeah. Twitter? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm disturbed that you're drawing parallels between me and Paris Hilton. <laughs> But I think you would actually find it useful because I, I love the ability to just share with people. Yeah. I, I've always hated instant messaging, yeah. frankly. To me, this is a palatable form okay. of instant messaging that I really enjoy and I get a lot back out of. So I, I would encourage you to. Uh, yeah, I still up. don't have instant messaging, and I feel like I'm kind of behind. I'm I'm just catching up with email now. I don't know if people realize this; they may have emailed me, but but when I get an email, my secretary will print it out and bring it into my office, put it in the inbox, and then if I have a reply, uh, I call her. She comes in and she takes shorthand. That's you're lying. That's not how it works. You're exaggerating. I don't believe you. And so, if I could get my secretary on this tweet tweeter thing, I might I might go for that. Yeah. I I would say I try really it out. Tell. I, I mean, really I really have a very skeptical. strong feeling that Twitter is uh, is uh, very. It's not even. It's beyond Silicon Valley specific. It's almost like Silicon Valley news, tech news specific. Like the people. The big well, bloggers, you, the big journalists. Why don't, why don't you try it out and see what you think? I mean, I it's kind of like I was very skeptical of blogging in early 2004, you know. But I still don't have a blog. I I've never called Joel and Software a blog. It was just a, it's a bunch of essays, and I don't put blog posts because I think they're too short. Because if you haven't, my, my feeling is if it's not a full length essay that I thought about, that it's 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 not going to have enough. Uh, uh, it's not going to be sort of deep enough to be really worth the time almost. Well, these are very deep philosophical issues you're getting into, so I, I would suggest <laughs> trying it out before we conclude that it's not going to work. So, uh, did you want to do one final one question? Twi- okay, wait, I have to put this down on my to-do list. Get a Twitter. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm not really going to do that. Uh, yeah, let's let's take, let's take a question that's completely unrelated here. Hi guys, this is Obvious Troll. Uh, after mocking you on Reddit for your terrible website, I have to admit I've been listening to your podcast and I find it entertaining and very interesting. After your last episode where you talked about the difference between computer science and software engineering, I realized I had a question for you. I graduated from college in 1987. Now I find myself wondering if it's worthwhile to go back to school and get a graduate degree. The, uh, college I'm looking at has a grad degree in software engineering, which is interesting to me, but also terrifying because it's been a long time since I've been to school. So I have to ask you, do you think that going back to grad school to get an advanced degree and update my skills is worthwhile, or if I should just do continuing education kinds of things and you know update my Java certification and stuff like that there? Thanks very much, and again, I've really enjoyed your podcast. Uh, well, thank you. So let's see, 1987. It depends on what the rules are. Do you get back into your frat automatically if you go back to school in 87? Do you have to re-pledge and go through that whole hazing thing again? I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm equipped to really answer this question. I mean, I don't know if I have enough background on... I mean, to me, you know, as a practitioner, I mean, I, I, I went to the University of Virginia, and although I enjoyed it, I was really happy to be out in the world... You know, I, I just had a hard time at, at college because 
I would just rather be solving real problems rather mm-hmm. than fake problems. And that, that really bothered me throughout college. It's like it's so abstract and you have to learn how to learn. And I, I get that. But I just really was chomping at the bit to be out there doing yeah. something uh, practical. And, and not that school isn't practical, but I, I just don't know that I would ever, ever personally. Well, these software that. engineering degrees, so especially masters in software engineering, are, are bound to be a lot more practical than a computer science undergraduate degree at a liberal arts school. Well, certainly, if you look at, I know Google and Microsoft um, certainly hire differently based on what degree you have. Certain companies that really value software engineering will accord you a different salary and a different really? title based on the degree you have. Absolutely. We generally have Absolutely. a policy of paying people I mean, with I've a heard. master's degree one dollar less than people with a bachelor's degree alone. <laughs> yeah, as a symbolic way of indicating to them that we don't feel that master's degrees. Are necessarily that valuable, but that's not that's not always the case. It, it really it depends a lot on the person. It depends a lot on what you've already learned. It depends a lot on whether the classes that you're going to be taking are things that you've learned before that you haven't learned before. A lot of masters in computer science are just repeat are repeats of of the bachelor's curriculum that are intended for people that didn't go to as good of a bachelor's school or that did not get a CS bachelor's degree and are now coming back to graduate school for the first time to learn CS. And so um, in, in at a lot of schools, the bachelor's and master's are almost indistinguishable, in computer science at least. Uh, so uh, it, the, the, number of, the number of questions there is, is huge, and it just – it depends. I, I can't really uh, answer. You know, in general, I, I, I am very reluctant to answer people's questions about, hey, what should I do? In, in life, should I do take path A or path B? Because I don't really know them well enough to answer that. I don't even know how to answer these questions for myself, let alone for other people. Uh, well, I, I tend to fall back into the mode of thinking of, you know, it's all about your portfolio. Mm-hmm. I mean, degrees are great, but it, what have you done, right? Like, what have you really done? What have you shipped? What have you, <laughs> what can you point to on the web, realistically, right? What can you point to on the web, web as, like, artifacts of things you've created mm-hmm. that mattered? And, and to me, my number one goal is to constantly create things on the web that matter. Could be code, could be blog articles, could be, as long as it has a public face and it's helping somebody, that's a part of your yep. portfolio. So, in terms of investing your effort, I think you have to balance that and think, how can I create things that are findable and that you know potential employers would know about me? Certainly, a degree is one way, right? You have a piece of paper that says, "Okay, I have a PhD from Harvard in computer science or whatever." Um, but there's many, many other ways to do that too. Cool. All right, um, I want to I want to do a tip of the week, uh, and 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 uh, this is is going to something that Leo Laporte does. But I actually found an application today that has saved me so many hours of work that I, I kind of want to mention it. Uh, uh, do you ever do you do a lot of SQL database work? I guess we're SQL. We're going to be using SQL Server for Stack Overflow. Uh, yes, and there's are. always this we problem are. of how do you get? You've got your development database and you've got your live database, and all the developers on the team may have their own development database. And keeping those in sync and figuring out what changes you made to one and how to get them onto the other is something that is not necessarily solved using the uh, out of the box tools. Um, so today, by chance, I, I encountered. Uh, a couple of products from Redgate Software. And by chance, I say, because I've known Neil Davidson for a while. He's the guy who organized the Business Software Conference. Um, and uh, and I know that he had this company called Redgate, and it's based out of Cambridge, England, and they do tools for SQL developers. And I kind of knew that the concept was there. And and I was just sitting sitting there today, desperately needing to copy a bunch of changes that I'd made on my development database up to a live database and even figure out what those were. 
and I had very carefully kept a list of all the tables I had changed and all the views and stored procedures I had created. And uh, it was still just turning out to be remarkably tedious. So I tried. They, they have a couple of things. One is called SQL Compare. I think that's what it's called. Let's find out. Uh, yeah, they have SQL Compare, and they also have something called SQL Data Compare. So SQL Compare looks at two databases and actually looks at the schemas and the stored procedures and the views and figures out what changes you would have to make to one database to make it look like the other database. And then SQL Data Compare will actually go in and the actual data is in the rows, and it'll figure out what rows it needs to copy. So um, I just thought I'd call that out. If you're doing a lot of SQL development, you should check that out. This is not a paid advertisement. Everybody's going to say, what, are you guys taking advertisements now? Uh, it's just a really fantastic tool that I've been using today and um, greatly appreciate. So I'm going to go pay for that as soon as I get off the, the phone with you. Um, yes. Anyway, recommended. Redgate, SQL, Compare, SQL, Data, Compare. Uh, what else uh, What else do I have on my list? Not that much. I guess we should tell people uh, one more time where the website is and the transcripts and how to leave us comments. Um, we get we get a whole lot of uh, email that we can't respond to. Uh, there are – gee, I only did about three of these. Um, but uh, a bunch of people that I wasn't able to uh, play their messages, Kurt Lloyd, John Dyer, Chris Bennett-Cash, James Fisher, Sean Paulson, Craig Shoemaker, and a couple others. And I want to thank you all for um, – uh, submitting questions, and I'm sorry I couldn't get to all of them. Uh, in general, the ones that I'm going to play are going to be the ones that are, you know, just interesting, and so that may vary from week to week. Um, and the way that you uh, submit a submit a uh, question is to record an MP3 question, uh, record it as an MP3 or Og Vorbis um, or WAV or whatever format you can figure out how to record, and then uh, email that to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Did I get that right? Podcast right. at stockoverflow.com. Yep. Just email the MP3, uh, put in the subject what it's about, keep it under 60 seconds or 90 seconds, uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have time to get to uh, three or four of them in every episode. And I really appreciate all those good questions because they give us something uh, to talk about and they keep us grounded. Uh, the other thing is that um, uh, we do get a couple of emails from people who uh, want to follow along but are hearing impaired. And um, the other trouble with these podcasts is that being voice, they can't be searched by Google and so forth. Uh, so for those two reasons, uh, we've we've made a place available for volunteers to contribute transcripts. Uh, if you have a few minutes, a, a lot of people have been doing this, and, and, and about two and a half of those transcripts are up there already. Um, that's also on the website at uh, – where is it? If you go to um, – Blog.stackoverflow.com. Yeah, or you can just go to stackoverflow.fogbugs.com, which is our Fogbug site. And uh, you go into the wiki there. There's a wiki with all the transcripts. And uh, I, I want to thank a bunch of people. A lot, Most of them are anonymous, but those of you that registered, Eric Rockstad, Daniel Pritchett, uh, Michael Matthews, Jonathan Roch, Alex Givant. I'm pronouncing these all terribly. Adrian Clark, Christopher Sveck. Oh, I know him. Uh, William Merriam. And I want to thank uh, and everybody else who contributed in some small way either. Just, you know, go up to the – you can go up to the transcript site. Find a minute that's not there and just type in a minute worth of text, and that'll be uh, appreciated by uh, a great number of our of our uh, listeners and followers. Any other yes. uh, housekeeping? All right. No, see you next week. It. Bye. Okay. And now I.